Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team. Hello again, and welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the October edition of State of Distressed Debt. This is part of the Focus podcast series, as if you didn't already know. Uh, and this is where we focus on U.S. stress, distress, and bankruptcy markets. It is October 5th. I'm your host, Noel Hebert. And market volatility, whether up or down, seems to be about the only constant. So joining me once again to explore it all are Eliza Ronald Tannen of Bloomberg News, as well as litigation analyst Nikki Sabaluku and senior distress analyst Phil Brindell of Bloomberg Intelligence. In addition, because everybody's been a good little person. It's all treats and no tricks for our listeners as we bring you uh, a must-hear conversation with Todd Lemkin, partner and chief investment officer of Canyon Partners. But, Phil, first to you, uh, you know, a bit of a wild ride in your markets and mine over recent months. I mean, if I think just about high yield, I mean, we were down, I think, like 6.7% or so in June. Then we're up almost 6% in July. We gave all of that back in August and September. And now we're off to the races here again in October. Uh, You know, I know coming out of the August podcast or last month's podcast in September, you're looking for maybe a little bit of a reversal because things had started had stayed pretty stable. So, you know, what kind of month did we get and and sort of how are you looking at, you know, the the future here for, for your marketplace? Thanks, Noel. Yeah, things things turned out the way we thought they might. Um, If you recall, during the summer, you know, the distressed uh, supply peaked at the end of June. Then we had uh, July and August sort of moved in the other direction. It actually came down to 103 billion in the uh, ICE U.S. High Yield Index. The percentage that was uh, distressed was down to 7.3 percent, and we thought maybe. Post Labor Day, they'd all, you know, come back and go, oh, uh, things aren't that great. And sure enough, we had higher rates, we had lower equities, and we also got more j- distressed. <clears throat> About uh, 35 billion more of distressed bonds in the uh, ICE U.S. High Yield Index. Uh, so that that distress ratio moved up to 9.8 percent. Um, and importantly, I have a technical signal that I've been watching, and it was on the cusp of, uh, you know, maybe telling people to go put their dip their toes back into high yield again. And uh, one of the things that it looks for is some temporal consistency that, like, you know, you don't just have a trend where it's like up and down. It's actually down, down, down. You needed that third <laughs> month of down supply. And we didn't get that. So I'm kind of relieved because I think the right signal fundamentally, at least, you know, what seems to make sense to me is that we're getting more of a grinding out distress cycle as opposed to the the quick surges that we've seen, you know, call it 2008 and 2020. And and so what does that mean for you in terms of I think, you know, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we certainly talked a little bit about with Todd today and then last month with Ray Parker as well was sort of uh, how are you thinking about sort of the the duration of the cycle, you know, because obviously in the wake of the pandemic, that cycle was really, really compressed given the Fed interventions. 
even the financial crisis, a little bit of a shortened cycle because that was sort of the the advent of QE. Uh, but those are not sort of like what we knew in history before that, where you got sort of these elongated stretches in the early 2000s or uh, even in the early 90s. So do you do you have a sense in terms of how you're looking for the this cycle to play out? You mentioned grinding. Is that a signal that maybe this is sort of an elongated event? Right. So we're still below the June peak. We're about 15 billion shy of that. Um, that would only be about a 10.7 percent distressed ratio. Uh, typically, we see the highest, the, the lowest peak that we've seen for a distressed cycle is about 24% of the high yield index is actually distressed. <laughs> so, so, so we got a little way to go is what you're saying. Yeah, we're, we're, we're barely there. We're barely in the early innings. And, and, and so, you know, are we going to get there quickly? Because, you know, if you take a look at that uh, 2020 cycle, which I don't think, you know, some people might not even call a cycle just an aberration, but really it was basically we shot up to the moon in march of 2020 and then you know shortly after that it it, it came off i mean actually our buy signal the technical buy signal came you know uh showed up in june because it was that quick you you just want what you do want to do is if you get that pronounced spike in distressed where like you it's really a, a systematic dislocation you want to get back in. You know that there's a time to buy. You just don't want to catch the falling knife. But you also, so that's why you give it some time. And and three months is what we found, you know, is enough to get through. And and it it kind of worked here. Hopefully, um, you know, three months is you know we couldn't get to the three month mark. So uh, that sort of tells me there there's still more distress distress coming. All right. So uh, so that's a, you know, really interesting. And I guess maybe that's a good point for us to sort of pivot here uh, and bring in the conversation that Phil and I were able to have a little bit earlier today with Todd Lemkin uh, and, and get his thoughts on exactly what he's looking for, as well as sort of, you know, how the cycles have played out in the past. In this October 5th edition of State of Distressed Debt podcast, Phil and I are very, uh, very pleased to welcome uh, Todd Lemkin, Partner and Chief Investment Officer for Canyon Partners. Todd, welcome to the State of Distressed Debt. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and dig right in here because I think we've got a ton of uh, really interesting stuff to talk about. And uh, on this Wednesday, I mean, uh, you know, a little bit of a drawdown today, obviously coming off a couple of big upside moves more recently, but then some sloppy activity uh, sort of the tail end of uh, September, but maybe we start sort of with more of a macro view in terms of how you're thinking about, you know, where we are in sort of this credit cycle and, and sort of what sort of distress dynamic you're looking for. Is this, you know, sort of the, the shortened abbreviated cycles that we saw out of the pandemic or is this something different? Yeah, I think that is the the sixty four thousand dollar question, right? That everybody is is wrestling with and, and, and we are as well in, in that um you, you have sort of what what you know everyone would like to believe is, is the achievable Fed plan of a soft landing here, and then you have you know what everybody fears that inflation you know could linger longer, uh, and it, I think it, which would presumably lead us if the Fed doesn't suddenly pivot to to more of a harder landing or or more severe recession. I think what we're trying to do um, in our minds, rather than you know killing ourselves to answer that which seems unanswerable is really to seek out companies and industries where 
we feel they can survive or, or even flourish in, in, in either scenario. Um, and I think there are those opportunities out there right now. Uh, there's enough fear in the system and the fear ebbs and flows a little bit day to day. But um, I think over the next six to nine months, um, you know, we'll have enough of these stretches of volatility like we just went through with September to really capitalize on it um, and, and take advantage of that baby out with the bathwater, just push out of all things credit or all things stressed or triple C or potentially stress, distressed uh, or consumer related, you know, whatever sector, housing, building products, people are concerned about it at, at, at that point in time. Um, our, I would say our sort of internal house view is, you know, much higher probability, frankly, that it's a, a, a shorter, less severe recession than feared. Um, but, you know, we would we would never be so bold to say we know. Um, and you've got to you've got to kind of hedge yourself by by one hedging potentially, but two picking names again that you think have resilience to that lower probability, more severe scenario. Um, and I just think there are enough opportunities out there with with uh, you know, quality companies, maybe too much debt, maybe their cost of capital is going to go up, their first lien financing cost of capital, particularly going up as floating rates go up here. But let's say they don't have any maturities for several years. Uh, because they're relatively recently refinanced or it's a new LBO. Uh, many of them have a lot of liquidity. They often don't have any covenants, so to speak. Uh, there's not necessarily something that's going to cut off the optionality uh, from a capital structure standpoint. Then beyond that, they may have a business that actually benefits from a slowdown here. Even if there's only modest improvement in the supply chain side of things, if there's any improvement at all, that's that's a huge relief, you know, sort of boot off of their their throat, if you will, uh, and I think that will coincide a little bit with the slowdown. So, we talk to companies all the time. We say, if I didn't have to run full out at 120% utilization rates, and I could get back to running 85% utilization rates, I'd be thrilled. Uh, I could actually manage my employee costs more reasonably. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't be searching, scrounging the world for my raw material inputs wherever I can find them, and therefore paying a ton for them. Um, I'd have lower freight costs. I could I could just manage my logistics much better. And they may give up a little bit on the volume side, but they make up for it so much on the margin side. And I think those are the real um, interesting companies and industries to look at right now because they, you can see where they actually benefit from this slowdown um, and and have the resilience to ride through it. I'll stop I mean, there's there. A, there's a lot. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there to sort of maybe unpack. I mean, I, I think yeah. it's... You know, and it speaks to one of the things that we're starting to hear more and more in terms of people getting their, quote unquote, their proverbial shopping lists ready. Uh, I guess maybe as we sort of dig into that a little bit, uh, maybe we can uh, get into some sort of names in the past and sort of what that looks like. But I guess, you know, one of the things that I'm interested now, uh, just given, you know, Canyon itself and you guys have sort of stayed a little more of a pure play throughout the cycles versus maybe some of the evolution that your competitors have seen. But also taking that with the size of the firm, does that limit you at all in terms of what kind of situations you can play? Or, or do you think you're still nimble enough to sort of be in a name that might be a couple hundred million versus maybe larger scale? I, I look, I think, you know, you, you have to be honest and say we went through this today on a particular name um, where we just decided, hey, we've been chasing this name for several months. They actually finally had the big, great news we were waiting for today on, on some deal approval and uh, still no trading in the name, you know, and, and part of that is 
sometimes name specific and sometimes it's just sheer size like you're describing um yes we've got to shy away from situations where you know it's a 50 100 200 maybe even sometimes a 500 million dollar capital structure and it's just not realistic that we're going to be able to move the needle um on the other hand if it's a new financing situation well the historic company capital structure may have, been, may have been very liquid or relatively small we may be presented with an opportunity to put a significant amount of capital in to fix a problem or make an acquisition or whatever the case may be and that may be a, a way to put you know meaningful money into a smaller or mid-cap type situation um i don't think you know by any means we're we're in the you know uh mega size category that some of these other firms have, have migrated to over the last 10 15 years uh, without saying any specific names, uh, you know, I think those folks have a, a absolutely a, a, a volume problem, um, particularly as they're trying to play in the alternative part of credit and not buying the regular mainstream liquid part of credit. Um, for obvious reasons, that that is challenging, and they've got to look for very large financing opportunities, generally speaking, to write those checks and actually move the needle. Um, we're not there by any means. Um, and as you said a second ago, we have stayed pretty true to our, our craft. Um, you know, we're we're not out with 25 different products and we need to find something that fits this mold and that mold and that mold. Um, we're still able to use this multi-strat approach, go where the best opportunity is in the day and credit up and down the cap structure. That That, that gives us a pretty wide net pretty wide field we look across you know multiple geographies we try to look across all the active industries even active asset classes with structured products as an example so um i think that the 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 constraint and it gets back a little bit to your first question about you know what do you do with this timing question and question of depth of of recession and economic severity here You've also got this liquidity factor, right? Uh, ever since the financial crisis, you, you've got the banks in a position where they're generally, although they're starting to creep into some exposure here on some of these, you know, hung financings this year, they generally don't have much on their books. They don't run big proprietary books. I think we all understand that. They don't run a lot of inventory. Um, and then a lot of the credit market has moved to to longer term locked up structures. So they don't have liquidity needs and therefore don't tend to trade. Uh, they tend to sock things away. Uh, and finally, I think even the larger real money crowd um, has gotten more sophisticated over the last 10, 15 years on, on how they move about in these markets. Um, they, they tend to do less, you know, absolute foolish blow names out uh, as it's downgraded or as there's new, you know, bad news of the day. They're, they're more methodical about it, more, you know, more calculated in how they trade. And they're even willing in many cases to ride through bankruptcies if need be. So, you know, you have to have that shopping list you're talking about. Um, you've got to accept that, that I think you're, you're kind of tiptoeing into a variety of names every day or at least every down, you know, negative sort of day like we're having now. You're out looking for, you know, what might come in the net here. Um, and, and it's just, a, I think, a, you know, a, a reality since the global financial crisis, in my opinion. I, I don't think the days of... You know, these very large multi hundred million dollar, you know, for sale signs coming into the market in names are going to be here again, or at least it seems very unlikely to me. So, so there's two things I really want to sort of follow up on from that. I mean, there's more than two, but I'm going to pick two. So one, you talked about sort of like the alternatives sort of in the marketplace. 
And, and I guess, you know, one of the questions that I would have for you in terms of how do you think about how, you know, high yield, stress to stress, how the, how the broader high yield landscape has evolved over the last decade? Uh, and do you, does that present any worries? I'm thinking specifically here about private credit, uh, you know, yeah. in sort of the expansion of the loan marketplace as well, you know, these other sort of more liquid landscapes. But now they're, you know, if you th- if you break down the high yield market into thirds, you've got the traditional corporates, which we all know and love. They're a third. Loans are a third. And then private credit's nearly a third. You know, do you, do you worry about that at all? There's a lot there. Um, I, I think uh, you're absolutely correct. And I think that trend's going to continue. I, I think more and more uh, that private or alternative uh, capital base um, is going to replace the traditional high yield uh, capital base, for lack of a better term, for financing things like LBOs. Um, and we've certainly seen that trend, and I, I don't see why it would change. Um, I do worry about it uh, on, on two levels. One, I think you really have to be cognizant of liquidity and what, you know, the, the sort of false sense of reality sometimes of. You know, things seem to be liquid, but you're only maybe seeing half the picture or, or even a third of the picture in terms of where all this credit is actually sitting. Um, and, and the related point to that is a lot of that credit that is now shifted into this private arena uh, is levered. Um, that has been the, the, the sales pitch for several years now, right, is this nice, steady, eddy, levered return. A lot of return of, 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 of current income uh, or current yield and uh, you know limited mark to market volatility because of the private nature of it at some point and and, and I think it, it would be a pretty extreme scenario but it's, it's, it's certainly plausible um, you could see the banks that have been financing a lot of those same players and it's probably the same four or five banks for the most part uh, you know, all decide that they're concerned about it, right? And concerned about their collective exposure. And there's a little bit in that, uh, in the system of that today, uh, particularly with Credit Suisse, as we've seen them in the news, uh, but other banks as well. And, and you know, the, the, the financing behind these private credit operators does technically have covenants. It, it, it technically does have uh, an ability for the banks to demand margin on a kind of quarterly basis, right? They, 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 it's called mark to model. Um, they've sort of provided an initial model on an individual name. The bank decides, okay, on based upon those projections, I'll lend you, you know, two turns of leverage against this name, subject to you being within 20% of that projected uh, model performance. So, in a in a severe enough economic downturn, right, you would have a number of names likely blow through those 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 covenant headroom thresholds. Um, and there are very strong relationships, and there's there's a real vested interest on both sides in not having a problem there. But you know, we've we've seen that movie before. Um, you know, the stressed RBS or the CLO market, et cetera. Uh, you know, at some point, did the banks say, oh, "We're putting our foot down, and we're concerned, and we don't want to be the last bank out, and so we're going to get ahead of the other banks, and and we're going to demand some some you know marching calls against those facilities or against those individual line items." I, I, th- that is a concern and a worry. Um, the, the, the final strand of that is who has bought the private credit, right? Or who has invested in it? Um, do they at some point have weaker hands? Uh, and I think a lot of the private credit has been placed with the insurance industry. 
uh, particularly in the last three or four or five years. That has become the craze. We all are well aware of it. It, it seems the direction we're going. The challenge with the insurance industry, while they have very long-term liabilities and therefore the perception of you know very long-term, almost perpetual capital, they are heavily regulated is the ironic sort of twist in that. Um, uh, they are not hedge funds <laughs> um, or, or anything like that or private credit entities or anything like that. And yet they, so you're a saying lot they're of not them, diamond hands. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And they have stockpiled a lot of this, you know, dressed up, uh, single B or better rated by one rating agency, private credit. And they have checked a lot of boxes that it's reasonably liquid um, and performing, et cetera, et cetera. Again, if you have a severe enough economic downturn, right, some of those checked boxes will prove inaccurate. Um, and then where do these insurance companies go with this stuff? Uh, you know, oftentimes, their names people don't particularly know well. Back to this problem of there's not much of a public liquid market. If you bring a name that everybody knows in the triple C index back to market, somebody will buy it. You bring a name nobody's ever heard of in, in, in some second lien form, right, that you own a big chunk of and your insurance company X and you want to go somewhere with that, where the heck do you go? Um, and I think yeah, that even in worked. that triple C, that bid could be very you know, thin. Relative your last, your last mark, agreed, right? so. agreed. So I, you know, I think we'll see some of that, and I do think that will be an opportunity. I, I, I am not um, sort of negative enough on the environment, I guess, or cynical enough on the environment to say it's absolutely absolutely going to happen that we're going to have this cataclysmic unwind of that whole ecosystem. I, I don't think so, but I think there will be. Um, you know, this operator or that operator or this insurance company or that insurance company that is looking for liquidity. And we, we, we heard of some of that kind of thing in 2020. I think had 2020 gone on longer, you would have seen more of it. There, there was a very well-known private credit firm that its entire fund portfolio was sort of being shown around in June of 20. Uh, restructuring advisors were hired to try to figure out if anybody had any interest in it. And it was precisely this problem, right? People just don't know the names. And they're going, you know, everything in this portfolio is marked at 95, 98. Uh, it's, it's, it's 50, 75, 100 names because they're generally pretty diversified um, in relatively small companies. What the heck do I do with this? You know, I really don't know them all. Um, my, my bid would be 50. I don't know. You know, <laughs> you, you, people would want to build, build in some massive cushion. And uh, that's the dysfunctionality in the whole thing. Now, but for the same reason, that's why everybody has this strong vested interest in looking the other way in a lot of ways and just kicking the can down the road. They are a bit like European banks in that way. Um, <laughs> the best thing I'm, not, I'm not sure that that is the, the banner I'm going to fly outside of, <laughs> outside of my house. I'm like a European bank. But the best thing to own. do with you know, an Italian bank's portfolio is give them six more months. Right, because you, you definitely don't want to come back and try to mark that to market and figure out where it ought to be. And you know, it, it's a huge hole in the side of the aircraft carrier. You know, right. So. Right. I, I I want to definitely you know bring Phil in here in a moment to to sort of dig deep. But I but you hit on it in sort of like your prior answer in this one. Uh, just an issue that I'm kind of curious about in terms of you know how you and your shop sort of think about. Uh, obviously, monetary policy is different, right? I mean. We're in a tightening yep. cycle, like we haven't been in a real tightening cycle, and goodness knows how long. Uh, you know, 
and, and obviously the market that, that we all live in for the better part of a decade was heavily sort of subsidized, you could say, by an ever more willing uh, global monetary policy to sort of support markets. Now, maybe we've seen some fraction with the Bank of England or even maybe in Australia uh, in terms of people going a little bit more slowly or, or not at all uh, relative to expectations. But do you worry about or do you do you have a view in terms of where policy goes and if maybe it begets sort of a new era where markets have to really find a, a real risk pricing as opposed to sort of, you know, a, a discounted risk pricing given, you know, a, a supportive, you know, federal, you know, federal reserve or central bank? Yeah, I mean, certainly do we worry about it? Yes. Um, and you know, I think we've been grappling with this this almost existential issue debate for some time now. I mean, arguably back to the financial crisis, uh, TFC, uh, but certainly through all the European sovereign, you know, scares and crises. This this was this came up, you know, repeatedly. I think that what you come back to is the debt to GDP. I think is the key figure, and 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 arguably beyond that, if you factor in things like pension costs or healthcare costs in the United States and Social Security, it's an even bigger number, as we all know. Um, if you look around the world, uh, at least sort of the, you know, the larger scale civilized world, I guess I would say um, all of these countries have have, whether they meant to or not, shifted to this, you know economic policy positioning where they they you know they're they're so heavily dependent on their central bank's balance sheets uh, and their treasury departments to subsidize their economies and, and and their social policies it is like my Italian bank joke I mean there's 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 not really a great way out of that um, short of them all getting together and collectively writing debt off uh, which people have always you know somewhat joked about or talked about as a theory so I think that the interest rate curve in the United States is right. Um, you know, just keeping this about the U.S. for a second. Um, you know, I don't see uh, an ability for rates to run away from us here. I don't think the inflation is, 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 is you know, whichever one is leading the other is able to run away from us too far either. Uh, I just think that, uh, you know, there's not the same growth there once was. There's, there, it's very difficult to stimulate growth. I'm not to get too abstract here. That, that, the blanket of all of that debt and, and, and the sort of social system that we've developed around that, that depends upon that, um, is, is a, you're, you're, you know what I mean? You're, you're, you're sort of in a cage there, uh, in, in, in terms of where you can really go. Uh, and I think, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at that, um, that that does put a ceiling in my mind on on how far rates can go, how far discount rates can go, um, and and you can have these moments in time like we're having now, but I do think at some point you're, you you will see the Fed actually have to pivot. They really will. I, there's just what's the alternative, right? When you've got that much debt, right? And this is the thing that scared everybody about the UK the other day. Uh, and why they pivoted in a nanosecond, right? Now we're talking about throwing Liz Truss out and all this, but the the that was such an interesting, you know, twelve hours if you if you step away at it and look at it, because it really applies to all of these countries, including the U.S. The minute there started to be some doubt in their financial system, 
right? As their their terminal rate went out to like six and a half percent. Um, what did they do? All this, you know, economic prudence, and we're gonna we're gonna back away from from our dovish quantitative easing. We're gonna actually become, you know, sellers of bonds, shrink our balance sheet, raise rates, flip in a in a second to we'll buy as many bonds as it takes. And it literally overnight they announced they would be buying more bonds than they planned to sell for the whole year uh, in, in the course of two weeks. Well, now they just have more um, to sell. And we've got the same thing here, right? Uh, you know, the, the Fed, I, I do think, is a little bit of a paper tiger here. Uh, they really are. And I think the reason a lot of this has been almost a, a theatric job-owning exercise, right? You could see it. Every time the S&P rallies, they send two guys out from the Fed to say, we really mean it. Don't get too comfortable. We're really, 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 really yeah. are going to keep raising rates. Um, I, you know, it's because it's 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 so delicate because of all of that debt, um, and it doesn't help that China is in disarray, uh, is no longer the growth engine it was. It's got a lot of problems we could talk about for hours. Um, Europe's been that way for a long time, um, so there isn't a place in the world right to go for growth um it, we're all living on this social security program that requires really low interest rates and so i i cynically think there's there really is a limit to to how far rates and implied discount rates or implied risk uh yields if you will can go myself unless we're talking about questioning the whole system but but it, it's circular at that point all these central banks flip back to you know, UK mode. Yeah, no, I think those are some really interesting points. I actually showed my uh, daughter the U.S. debt clock. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, Phil and Todd. Uh, I think like so. This, the website that has all the different liabilities of the government. And she's like, yeah. what, what's that number? Is that million? I'm like, no, that's trillion, honey. That's, right. uh, <laughs> it's just like head explodes <laughs> or whatever. But, but I think the point is right here, right? Because the Fed has sort of worked itself into this box. And I love that you sort of highlighted the fact that every time the market rallies a little too much, it's like, okay, get the parade going. We need to, yep. we really need to knuckle down on this. But, you know, you think about things like the housing market or, or even the, the COLA adjustments to the liability stuff. Exactly. And it, it adds up in a hurry. But let's maybe get a little bit more micro here just uh, because I know Phil's chomping at the bit. Uh, Phil, I know you have some some really uh, detailed stuff to go into, and I know uh, Todd's uh, uh, equal to the task, so why don't we dive in? I did have a lot of stuff, but now I'm all concerned about your parenting methodology that you'd be showing your daughter the deck clock. That's, that's not the kind of nightmare a parent should be showing their well, child. Well, Todd mentioned he's a cynic. I'm I'm trying to start my kids young as a proper credit guy. Right. It's never right. it's never too soon to be a cynic. That's right. a, um, Todd, I was very interested in what you were saying about private credit and specifically, you know, being on the public side, I do a lot of research and I tell, you know, anyone who, you know, asks about my research, I can only look at the names that are actually public, you know, where there's public documents that are being filed. Uh, you know, we're not on the news team, you know, talking to people behind the scenes. We're, we're actually dealing. And, you know, I found it fascinating because, that that's always struck me as something a creditor or you know an investor in in debt should be interested in is if i don't like it at some point will there be a market and do creditors ever think about that hey why don't you make this more accessible to a general population i know that 
there's a lot of private companies that just don't want their financials out there for competitive reasons. But more often than not, the, you know, there's that there's this gray area where it's like public syndication lender. I get public information. I can trade on that. But at the same time, you know, it's it's, you know, not public to people who are researching and, you know, analyzing it. So I'm just kind of curious, is that where where do you like investing debt? I mean, you know, is, is that something that you'd prefer is to have more public, uh, you know, outreach or is it? We, we certainly would. And, and this gets back a little bit to Noel's earlier question about, you know, I, I know you guys have stayed sort of true to your, your trade and, 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 you know, I, we really have uh, not to go back to that too much. The, the reason I mention that is we thrive on and feed on public market volatility at the end of the day, right? We're looking for that forced irrational seller and there could be various reasons that's, that's being created, right? They've got leverage. They've got a rating constraint. They've got a fund that's done there. There's just general outflows in the world because of fear about rates, whatever it is, right? Um, so we, Embrace the more public securities, the better, be it loans or bonds or what have you. The challenge is, um, you know, it's one of these Adam and Eve kind of questions, like somebody somewhere got the entire asset management industry, and I, I, I blame the private equity guys, hooked on this concept of no mark to market, right? Because nobody likes volatility. Nobody likes going to their investment committee or their investment board at an endowment or at a pension or any of these things, even a sovereign fund, and having to explain, yeah, these guys were supposed to be brilliant, but it turns out that they too show mark-to-market volatility, right? And and everybody in the room says, how could that possibly be? You know, uh, we're not supposed to look like we move like the markets, and right, everybody sold the first the vision of you can you can you can be market neutral, you can limit volatility these different asset classes, be it distressed or anything else, offer less volatility. They're uncorrelated. People watch the financial crisis happen. Some of that proves true, but some of it doesn't, right? Even if it's momentary and it's marked to market. Um, everybody looked at their private equity portfolios and said, it's not happening there. I, I really like that, right? That, <laughs> that part of the book seems to always generate a 15 to 20% IRR. Um, and I don't have to deal with any of this. I mean, just to put it simply, and um, I think those guys started saying to the same people buying private equity, you should talk to the guy next to you who covers credit, right, uh, in your public markets department. We're going to start creating funds that are similarly long-term, locked up, where we own loans in full. They're generally going to be loans because a bond, by definition, is typically syndicated. And um, they won't mark. Right, like that Italian bank, we own them all, right? So why should they mark? And as long as the fund mandate says that's okay, um, it became this handshake thing a little bit, right? And then the results bared it all out. It made made great sense, and so everybody quickly embraced that. And um, you know, without getting too into the weeds, um, we've had clients say, "Why? Why do you mark?" <laughs> 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 And I'm serious. Um, and I, it, it, it's a reaction to this, right? I, and, and we had 
uh, we've been in LBOs many a time where the junior debt securities are trading in single digits, not not yields, but dollar prices. <laughs> and we will hear that the private equity underneath it is still just carrying it at cost. Because in their mind, it's temporary, it's ephemeral, there's nothing wrong, the company has plenty of credit, uh, plenty of liquidity, whatever the case may be for rationalizing it. But I think the biggest rationalization is it's in a long-term vehicle where nobody's demanding a mark. So I, I, I'm rambling here, but that's how we got down this road. Um, and, it, you know, it's so widespread and, 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 and it has permeated into these institutions in such a way I, I think it is going to be challenged to go backward from that. Um, I, I don't frankly think we will. That's 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 really interesting because I, I go back to my own history, which was in between 2000, 2010, when I'd be, you know, for these illiquid securities, we would really have to go to a pricing committee. We'd have to argue, you know, look, it's not trading. This is where we think it's marked. And then that would be bounced against our accountants and that sort of thing. And so it was you know, it was more the exception than the rule. And I, I guess what I'm hearing is in the last 10 years that 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 has really migrated to more of a model with the private credit model that this, this where you bought it is where we're marking it. And like right down until to there is, a, you know, until there is a hard and fast event, there's an impairment. It's almost the securization way of doing things. If you think about that. Right. Okay. A CLO doesn't mark to market. You only deal with it when it defaults. Um, you know, it's sort of that mentality, I guess. Uh, and the private equity guys have done it for so long and successfully, not, not even to poke holes at that. It's, it's worked well, right? Um, that and, when, and what's worked. interesting is when you do that in the debt space, I mean, like at least with the private equity, when they do it, it was like, okay, your debt's trading at 20 cents on the dollar, but you're still saying this is worth X and then right. they, they that would kind of push that if everything's well, they, private they could just do a distress exchange swap all the 20s out for the 30s and the equity is still worth <laughs> but, <laughs> but 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 the point being if everything's private nobody's really questioning anything you got it That's... sounds like the you know federal government <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> um that's that's fascinating T todd the other thing and this is kind of you know timely uh sourcing our hung deals like our bridge finance i mean like i used to invest in uh bridge financing and that was really a bet whether it was a bet on time how long it would take to actually get the deal done and it was a bet on the market that the market would actually be there for for that um is is did you guys play the bridge market at all is that something i imagine you guys are flexible you probably look at everything but you know is i i and you know i'm not looking to see oh you know you guys are caught up in bridge deals but i am interested that seems like a great opportunity for yeah. sourcing at this point Agreed. I, yes, we, we've we always tried to focus on the ones that are struggling. Um, and, and maybe that's rational and logical. I mean, we, we've never had a dedicated bridge product or something like that. There have been folks that have done that. Um, we don't tend to originate bridge loans, you know, the way some of the very large institutions do now in, in kind of in competition with the banks. Um, but we love these hung bank bridges uh and there have been a number of them recently in the news um unfortunately what what's been out there recently has been a pretty drecky collection of 
credits. Um, I'm not going to use any specific names, but and for that reason, when they go out to market in this environment, the pricing feedback is so onerous, the banks are choosing just to hang on to it. Right? We had a couple of them today. We had a couple of them yesterday. Um, and I think the banks are in a position to pull that off right now because they don't have very large exposures and internally can live with this. And they're probably right. If they ride it out, there'll be better days. Um, but, you know, historically, that has been a great place to, to, to kind of look for opportunity and some of them, the banks have, you know, kind of pulled the ripcord. Um, you know, we are working on a couple of them now. I mean, it's just astounding where some of these price points are going. Um, and I think everybody in, in, in the room, so to speak, knows it's it's temporary because it's so extreme. But you're talking about, you know, banks committing to things with high single-digit coupons. And, you know, they probably have three points in the deal. Maybe they have five points in the deal. And they're selling things down 15 points. You know, um, right. and and they're in some cases very, uh, you know, reasonable credits. I'm not going to pretend they're, you know, uh, single A credits, but uh, there are some great opportunities in that area. Um, I think there's this sort of gray area of what's a bridge loan versus what's kind of a capital solution, you know, almost like intermediate bridge loan, which is really an area we've focused in for several years, you know, going on probably over a decade, which is to me, this area that the private credit business in terms of the, so the, the, the broader term, the grander term doesn't tend to focus on, right? They're very MOIC focused, M-O-I-C. They don't like things ironically necessarily that come back to them quickly. They want to put that money out, put it in a financial facility, Ideally, nobody knows the name and it doesn't mark anywhere and just compound, right? <laughs> and you can see the appeal of that. So as that has become this huge, you know, massive clump of capital in the market, right? There, there are a lot less eyeballs on the stuff where LBO firm thought they could finance this at a weighted average cost at 10%. They're finding out it's 12. Okay, how do we do this and come back and refinance it in two years? Will somebody do something that has less call protection or we design a security whereby they want to do it in two years? That's the only thing they can do. And we put them in kind of a straight jacket and say, fine, you know, we'll live with our, our 15% IRR, you know, because it's got a certain back end fee and a front end fee. But if you deviate from that plan, right, either there's a covenant default or there's very high call premiums or the coupon steps up, you try to design these kind of vice grips that actually we love, right? Versus buying that regular way LBO financing where the sponsor can typically do anything. So I think those kind of bridge facilities, a little different than the classic definition you probably had in mind, I think are great opportunities. And we run across those all the time. Um, as you add economic distress or, or, or uncertainty or downturn, now those can sometimes morph into being rescue loans. All kind of a semantic discussion here, but you know, where uh, typically an LBO firm, but not always, is saying, you know, I could restructure, I could contemplate doing something really adventurous. What I'd really rather do is just get a little more capital because I'm burning $100 million a year now that the economy's, you know, uh, in a bad place. If I can just find $200 million of financing, that's two years, I'll be fine. I don't have any maturities until five, six, seven years. And we're seeing a lot of that, right? Because you these companies rightfully so sponsor or no sponsor are looking at their business and saying, this is just such ridiculous circumstance. You know, you take something like the aviation industry. If you read about Boeing and Airbus and private jet industry, et cetera, 
they literally can't put planes together, right? And the auto industry has suffered from that too. They, they have to believe, and it's hard to argue with them, right, that there's a better world down the road to pull the plug today or, or to do some really elaborate restructuring today if you could just buy yourself two years and see if, you know, finally you can get the fan blades to make an engine. Um, you'd like to think we could do that. Uh, you know, I, I, and I think we will, personally. Um, so that kind of opportunity is, is pretty rampant, particularly in the industrial space, where they're really affected by the supply chain. Interesting. So um, that speaks to something that's maybe taps into your scale, and I want to bring it back maybe macro before we, we hand it back to fill the dip dig back into the micro, but, you know, I, I guess one of the things, you know, with that example that sort of comes to mind is, is, you know, Phil and I, you know, and I think we've talked to you about it as well in terms of, you know, you see a lot of stories about all the capital that's getting raised in the space, right? And yeah. and so all the dry powder, the dry powder, the dry powder, do you worry about, uh, uh, you know, sort of as the cycle plays out, if we go back to your six, nine, 12 month, you know, time frame, do you worry about sort of the ability uh, uh, for, you know, the marketplace for the investor set to stay disciplined on some of these opportunities to make sure that, you know, since we finally got a window to actually print yeah. some decent IRRs, you know, can we hang on to it or people are just going to chase it? Uh, I do worry about it. I absolutely right. Uh, and, and there are some very large pools of capital that have been locked up under the, you know, distressed umbrella that, that, that have to be antsy to deploy. Um, and, and typically, as you know, they only have so long in the investment period to use that capital. Um, and we saw some of that through COVID as well. Uh, people were buying, you know, what seemed like very aggressive fulcrum securities and capital structures. And I think had COVID, you know, gone and on just a little bit longer or the lack of bailout gone on just a little bit longer, you would have seen people lose some money there. Um, it's a reality and it, and it gets back to your earlier question about dealing with the illiquidity in the system and sort of, you know, how do you approach this from a shopping list pacing perspective? You know, again, we, we are sizable, but not so sizable that we have this, you know, incredible gun to head to deploy the capital. It's not that way. Um, I think that we, you know, can be disciplined, and, and you just have to be. Uh, we were involved in, uh, more recently, a uh, Latin American airline that had filed for bankruptcy in COVID, um, thought very cleverly, and I think I think an investment banker sold them on the idea that they could reject their aircraft leases in a New York bankruptcy. They didn't appreciate that that would then turn into a whole bunch of funds trying to take their company from them. <laughs> and... Um, and you know, in, in, in classic fashion, to your point, the, 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 the cash pay operating company bonds traded, but they never really traded at very distressed levels. They traded for two minutes or marked for two minutes in the 50s or something, but really the trading was in the 80s, okay? And this gets back to the Moik question and, and mandate issues that people have to deal with. What did trade were all the rejected aircraft lease claims, billions of them. Um, you know, the only catch is, right, that's stepping out quite a ways uh, in terms of the capital structure and thinking about where the fulcrum security is in that capital structure, um, particularly in an environment where currencies are not what they were and don't seem to be getting better in Latin America. You know, the, the oldest dollar denominated debt is kind of growing on you as you wait for travel to recover. So... Uh, we 
focused on those cash pay bonds. You know, maybe it was too safe, but I don't think so. Um, and we watched uh, a couple of very large, big name firms mop up these aircraft lease claims to the point where other smaller guys started copying them, thinking they, they should, you know, the sort of FOMO me too. I got to hitch my ride to these guys. And, you know, lo and behold, they're out right now with this exit financing that they had to backstop to make that the fulcrum security because they had to pay off all the debt in front of them that they cannot get done. So, uh, you know, as these couple of very large firms led this group into buying up all these aircraft lease rejection claims because it was a place to put a lot of money to work and, and sort of, you know, trying to almost control their own destiny and make that the fulcrum security, they had to commit to refinancing all the debt in front of them, right? Uh, basic sort of order of priority of bankruptcy. And we were perfectly fine with that. We saw that's what these guys were trying to do. They paid us all off at par plus a crew. We generate our 20% return. We get our cash and get to go home. They had to backstop several billion dollars of debt. And I don't think in a million years they thought they would actually have to fund that. Um, we're in the environment we're in and is looking more and more like they're going to fund it. Uh, and if they don't fund it, they've got to go place it in this market talking about hung bridges, uh, you know, at, at absolutely ridiculous high teens kind of yields, uh, which we would happily buy all over again. If they yeah, two bites at the apple. Buy that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think, you know, you that what had happened in COVID is you saw firms pull that off because it was such an abrupt bounce back. There were some famous names. Hertz would be one that comes to mind. And I think we could talk about it was all over the press where that worked brilliantly. Um, you know, I think in this kind of environment, um, you know, as much as these folks have very large pools of capital to sling around, people have to be a bit more careful and a bit more uh, methodical or precise in, in, in determining where that fulcrum security is, because even with a lot of capital, you can screw that up. Uh, and so long-winded way of answering your question, I, 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 I do worry about it. It's an unfortunate reality. Um, you know, it's, it's always better to be, you know, amongst a very small minority of parties that are willing to buy something versus a lot of sell pressure. But still, um, I've seen it get overwhelmed enough times that I think there's opportunity there that you can work around. So I want to be mindful of time here uh, for, for everybody's sake, uh, certainly for our listeners who... Uh, you know, because I, I think uh, us with Todd, we could probably talk for several hours. Uh, I'm not sure how successful that would be in the podcast format, but maybe we hand it over here to to Phil because Phil, you know, again, I, I know you're really you and Todd share sort of this love for the, the, the deep nuance of distressed investing. Uh, you know, and I know you had some additional kind of uh, inquiries there. Yeah. It's, Todd, everyone's talking about creditor violence. Uh, my take has always been, look, as soon as I started in this industry, it was pretty clear we all had a fiduciary duty to our funds and we were looking out for our, you know, like our funds. And and yeah. kind of that led to some natural conflicts. And I'm just curious how, um, you know, where you think the world has gone in the span of your career. Has it gotten more violent? Um, you know, and... And to some extent, you know, I remember it used to be a bunch of guys sitting on one side of the table trying to get the money from the other side of the table. And then right. it became now it's I'm just I'm looking across the table. I'm looking to my left. I'm looking to my right. <laughs> Maybe you have to look behind you, too. And I, I just yep. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how this has evolved. I, I think I 100 percent agree with your your 
your summary there. Um, it's been a fascinating evolution. We call it creditor on creditor violence, similar phraseology. Um, and, you know, I think two things have happened. I think that um, the the kind of creditor brotherhood that once existed, if that's, you know, the right term for it, uh, or, or loyalty or allegiance, um, no longer exists, uh, generally speaking. Um, periodically you find it, but it seems to have gone by the wayside. I think it is a bit of a function of what Noel was getting at. There's more capital. So there's a sense that people can do things individually. You know, I think what often was the commonality or the common bond was none, neither one of us can speak for what we needs to happen here on our own, or even two of us can't speak for this. So we need 10 of us to agree that we're all going to fund this. So we're all going to act in a certain way as people have gotten bigger in things like the Latin airline situation I was speaking about, you know, there's sometimes a little bit of hubris. They can do things on their own. Sometimes they can, but other times not, not necessarily. Um, that's one problem. Um, I agree with you. I think the other dynamic is, you know, the, the, the removal of covenants and, and, and this very transparent or, or, or Swiss cheese credit documents we, we live with and have been living with for a long time just opens up so many possibilities. It, it's very difficult to plug all the holes in the dike, right? So it, it used to be clearer on, like you said, they're over here on this side of the field and they're over here on this side of the field. There's really only one direction to play the game. We, we play offensive defense against each other east and west or something. Now it's three-dimensional chess, you know, because the document allows for so many different permutations. Um, you know, you just don't know how to shut it all down. And so what you've started to see is a lot of these kind of, they're almost like alliance agreements, and, and, and particularly in loans, but you see them with bonds too, where even before a bankruptcy, if there's any stress, the lenders will get together and, and sort of ally with each other and all sign either a joint sell-down agreement or some sort of uh, forbearance-type agreement amongst each other, which right. is a European concept, where they'll agree no, nobody can break from the group and cut a deal with the equity owner, typically, or another creditor without bringing it to the whole group to kind of diffuse the lack of trust and the concern that somebody would be lured off sides to play for the other team. Um, you know, I, that is just a reality that, that we live in today. And, and you yeah, unfortunately have to think, you know, in, in a circle all around. Yeah. The other point is the sponsor itself. And that really, to me, turned with Caesars. Um, everybody thought Caesars would kind of vilify uh, the Apollo and, and, and kind of, frankly, TPG's associated behavior there as white shoe big time firms people thought oh there'd be this stigma nobody else would you know want, after that happened and was kind of you know bared in front of the whole world or bared out in front of the whole world people thought I think there'd be a bit of a backlash the irony is it went the other way um, it, it, it made it completely acceptable to act that way if anything you were applauded <laughs> for for acting that way uh, and you started to see some of the most white shoe sponsors with, you know, the 50 year histories all of a sudden break from their historic aversion to acting that way or, you know, reluctance to be seen as getting their hands dirty like that to, oh, of course we do that. That's part of our repertoire as well. It became like a competitive disadvantage if they couldn't say they too knew how to 
pull assets out and raise financing against that and get a leg up on a creditor over here or there or whatever, you know. And so that that is another, uh, you know, bygone dynamic in the market. You can no longer rely on, I won't use any names again, but, you know, some of these real old crest, you know, upper upper tier firms to, to act that way. Um, they're going to do what they have to do and, 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 and you know, anything goes sort of love and war kind of thing. <laughs> no, that's, you know. that's fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Some of the lessons taken, uh, you know, from Caesars, uh, you know, and, and that was a successful investment for, uh, your firm. And I'm just, you know, there's, there's one specific thing that I'd like, love to hear, uh, your thoughts on and just kind sure. of your, your, your impression when it happened. And then just a general, you know, what were some of your lessons learned or did you see a common thread in your investments that, you know, and, and the, the, through Caesars and through other names where, you know, this is more important than that. But, um, specifically, they actually tried to change the Trust Indenture Act, it, you know, like an amendment in government, you know, when v- just for Caesars. I mean, there was an effort amongst Harry Reid to, like, you know, change the language in that. And I'm just like, have you ever, like, has there been another case that you've been involved in that, like, you've seen that kind of machinations behind the scenes? No, to be honest, no. <laughs> uh, now, maybe it's happened and we didn't know it, but I'd be surprised. Um, I, 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 I completely agree with you. It's just fascinating and, 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 and it was sort of flabbergasting that, that anybody would go that far. Um, you know, it, 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 I, I, I want to stay on the specific question, but you, you, you get into this abstract discussion about are these the next too big to fail institutions? How much influence and sway do they really have? I mean, everybody, right? There was the inquiry into what the large, money center banks in the U.S. were doing during the global financial crisis and what sort of sway they had politically. This might be the next chapter, you know, in that same dynamic. I, I, I would suspect it is. <laughs> um, you know, they will become levered institutions with too much influence politically if they're not already. Um, oh, I mean, as the repositories of like all the pension assets and everything else like that. Exactly. Exactly right. Uh, and tied into the insurance industry, which is a real other dynamic. But anyway, getting too far into the macro, um, I was going to say specifically the lesson for us from Caesars, and we've really tried to apply it to any other, any other credit, but particularly distressed credit. We really tried to play all sides in that situation, which, you know, some of our credit buddies, brother in did not necessarily appreciate all the time. Um, but I think in the end, it was the right strategy for us, meaning, you know, uh, if somebody steps on the rug over here, it's going to pop up over here. Well, if I'm standing on both sides of the rug or I own securities that benefit, you know, it's sort of the other expression people use is a Texas hedge, some long securities that actually hedge each other. Right. Um, and, and as the asset value there was debated, you know, and, and, and they were saying it was only X and it really was like 20X, um, that fulcrum security we're talking about a moment ago kept moving around. And in the background, the economy was also fluctuating and the perception of where the economy was going to go was fluctuating, which also drove the fulcrum security to move around, right? How well is gaming going to do over the next six months? Not to mention they're telling you numbers that aren't actually how it's really performing, which was another ingredient. Um, so 
if you own what are the two respective fulcrum securities, you know, on a kind of two-dimensional basis, but then even the other two on a three-dimensional basis, which we did, um, you can kind of dial these knobs up and down a little bit as the case is ebbing and flowing and you're getting a read on how this is going. Is the examiner report really going to be scathing? Is it going to get traction? Are they really going to be able to push on the sponsors to, you know, stand up to their guarantee or not? Um, maybe as you feel more confident, you know, in what the judge said that Friday, you know, you add more to your more junior part of your collective investment. Um, and we've really tried to, that was a particularly complex situation, as we all know, and a particularly large one. But we've tried to apply that kind of like circular thinking more and more and more as we go forward for exactly the reason you were getting at earlier, that you just have to. It's not as linear as it used to be. Uh, and there are lots of escape hatches for different creditors or the sponsor that you want to try to man you right. know, all around. You get you get yeah. you get to the point where you own you know the same pro rata percentage in each of the different you know fulcrum in, potential fulcrum instruments, and then you're just like put down the pencils to the lawyer so that you can stop billing me at two thousand dollars an hour. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Um, but it's then, like an arbitrage situation where somebody might say, you know, uh, how much short do I want versus long? What do I think the probabilities of deal closing are? Right make it more complicated now there's a there's both cash and stock consideration i gotta predict how many people will take cash for stock right maybe there's a caller on the stock is like another variable right and and if you think about that classic arb investor issue they've got to deal with all those variables and try to assign probabilities and then over time it ebbs and flows it changes as they get data they get more inputs and the stock market's moving around etc these aren't really different than that in many respects right, right? So I'm going to take you to a more general question, um, you know, in all of your experiences and, you know, what you've kind of learned to emphasize versus de-emphasize. Uh, it, when you're making investments, what have you found to be most successful? Is it like, you know, for distressed, is it the price that you get in at? Is it getting involved in the deal structuring and how you structure it? Is it the industry or is it just like maybe a company's unique position and you know the management team and the, the, you know or you know all those factors i'm just curious how you stack them out how you yeah. stack them up after you know your many years in the business we really and this gets back to kind of canyon's dna i guess you know or our what we see is our our special sauce we really pride ourselves on knowing the industries, knowing the companies and how they're faring in that industry. Um, management team does play into that to some degree, of course, too. More so, frankly, than all of the gymnastics of the restructuring process. I, I, I think in some respects, um, the generalist approach and we just focus on being great at the restructuring gymnastics or the sport of restructuring, um, you know, Yes, there's expertise in that. There's 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 lots of experience in that that could be helpful, but I think too many people ignore or, or or approach casually the business itself, and and miss hey, this business is going by the wayside entirely. This isn't a cyclical problem. This is a terminal industry, you know, obsolescence problem, um, or 
you're missing that online gaming is coming into the picture here. And you're thinking about this sort of, you know, simplistically, historically out of value, what would be called bricks and mortar gaming casinos, right? Um, there's this whole other piece of value um, that hasn't really been monetized or, or capitalized on yet, but it's coming. And, you know, as a result, I think in a lot of these situations, people do get burned by not having a great understanding of it. Um, or alternatively, they don't appreciate this business is worth quite a bit more uh, than, it, than, it, than it may seem to be. Um, and so I, I, I give me a long-winded answer, but the, the, the basic answer for us would be it really starts with picking a good company. Um, and, and, you know, this doesn't have to be uh, the greatest company in the universe, but there are a lot of really junky companies out there. And the old adage of a bad balance sheet, good business, that, that is true to this day. Uh, and there are a lot of bad businesses out there uh, that you want to look out for, particularly in this technological, rapid evolving world we live in today, right? These whole industries getting hollowed out. Uh, what are once industry champions can very quickly sort of flare out. And you, you, you know, you see distru- distressed generalist types get fooled by that more often than you think. Yeah, I, 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 one name in particular I remember writing about it. It was like uh, Nextel International, and there was like yeah. many like different parts to that legal arguments here and there. And you know, and uh, bottom line is the company was shrinking. Very quickly, right in front of yep. them, and uh, yep. you, you, congratulations, you got the biggest slice of the pie. But that pie is now <laughs> like less than a tenth of what it was two years yep. ago. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, a related I, I, point is just people that don't—they're—they're they're so myopically focused on just distressed credit that they actually aren't really aware of. I mean, I, it would surprise you because it seems so simple. Where the public equities in that industry are trading. Right. You know, I'll give you the satellite industry. Everybody and their brother was focusing on IntelSat. And again, I think this name's been so all over the news. I, I think we can talk about it for a second. It was a who is who of distress. And, and, and they're staking out different, you know, parts of the cap structure and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And there's legal arguments, et cetera, et cetera. The only catch is every security in that cap structure implies that IntelSat is worth 2x in terms of valuation what the public equities would imply it's worth. And it was just like, oh, that's ignore that. Let's just focus on cutting this thing up and fighting with each other. And we just kept looking at it saying, how does anybody buy anything in that capital structure when these other companies sitting over here were trading where they were trading and reflecting the fact that, you know, satellite television and point-to-point satellite communications were really going away uh, for a variety of obvious, probably obvious reasons. And it was just such a, a prime example of that kind of thing. Um, Anyway, so speaking of going away, I think we're kind of close to time here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I should hustle. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, listen, Todd, I mean, I I think I speak for both Phil and myself, super uh, thrilled to have had you on and and sort of pick your brain a little bit about a lot of things that are going on. Hopefully, hopefully we can have you back through because I feel like there's a lot more content that's back there. Um, But you know, I think we've got to wrap it for today. So uh, thank you very much for your time and uh, all the best. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was a pleasure. And let's do it again sometime. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care. So welcome back. It's good to be back here. Uh, hopefully uh, our listeners enjoyed 
you know, some of the thoughts that we got from Canyon Partners and their chief investment officer. Uh, now I want to turn into uh, some of the more uh, specific situations uh, that we're covering here in Bluebird Intelligence. And in leading off, Nagisa, as we like to do with you, uh, Endo, uh, I guess they're still in the news, I guess maybe newly in the news, kind of, sort of. Um, you know, I guess we got some stuff going on there with the Unsecured Creditors Committee. Thanks, Noel. Uh, yes, it's been about one and a half, close to two months since Endo's filing. And uh, unsecured creditors from the beginning of the case have raised questions about the influence that first lien lenders uh, have had or having over uh, the anticipated restructuring, which is was centered around this, six, this sale with a $6 billion uh, value floor that's supported by a credit bid by the first lien lenders. Uh, but those disputes uh, may not be as impactful where we stand today, at least. Uh, an unsecured creditors committee was appointed in the case uh, in, on September 2nd, and from that point forward, most of these arguments uh, appear to be carried uh, by that committee. Uh, the committee itself has raised questions about the first lender's influence, uh, particularly they've questioned the uh, liens on the $1 billion cash that Endo entered in bankruptcy with. But those challenges appear to have eased, uh, from what we can tell. Uh, the committee argued that uh, at the latest hearing on September 28th that the company has capitulated uh, to the first lien lender's but it also said that it's negotiating with the company around the proposed cash collateral order, which uh, will be heard later this month. Uh, for now, the focus of the committee seems to be on investigating the validity and priority of liens uh, by uh, in claims by the by the by the secured creditors. Uh, so liens on cash uh, and all this. Uh, and all these assets that would otherwise go to unsecured creditors supposed to be it looks to be the, the focus now. Uh, there's going to be factual questions about tracing these proceeds, unencumbered assets, and things like that. Um, so when Endo first entered, it, it's uh, it's part of this creditor fight that went to. Uh, the heart of its of its restructuring strategy, strategy, it filed with this uh, contemplated this lengthy sale process. I think about six months that it still appears to be in place, and an ad hoc group of uh, unsecured uh, creditors sought to terminate its exclusive right to propose a to propose a plan uh, while the company pursued the sale. So to have this parallel path to bankruptcy. Uh, that request is still out there. There seems to have been no effort to actually schedule a hearing and pursue it further. This sort of lying dormant uh, for now. The uh, committee doesn't hasn't brought it up uh, as far as we can tell, and certainly wasn't brought up at the latest at the latest hearing. Uh, so, uh, sort of where we stand now, I think it's important to know that there hasn't been a challenge to the proposed sale process, which. See, as I said, sort of gives a generous timeline for for the for the competing bids to develop. Uh, there's uh, a hypothetical Chapter 11 plan 
could reinstate first being debt, for example, and propose to convert unsecured debt to reorganize equity, ensuring some recovery, because there's no recovery right now for unsecured debt. Uh, but uh, that said, the court itself obviously cannot force the company to file a plan. So absent that, uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, so what are what are our next steps here? Like, where does this, uh, be, what's, in, what's in the docket in terms of what are we waiting for to, to come through the pipe next? It's a cash collateral motion on October 19th. Then uh, the sale process, I believe, the indication of interest are December 14th. There may be an auction, if necessary, around March. The sale hearing again then. So it's this is... Uh, as far as the sales go, it's a pretty lengthy timeline. But for now, there haven't been any moves. We have this motion terminate exclusivity, as I said, but that's, there's nothing scheduled on that yet. It doesn't seem like the com- committee is necessarily pursuing that. So it's pretty light in terms of what we're looking in, in the more immediate future. So let's uh, let's maybe change gears a little hit in the lines. I want to bring you in here. Um, you know, one of the, I guess, one of the ones that we're maybe more all acquainted with uh, to recently enter the world of bankruptcy, uh, Cineworld, uh, Cinemedia, what's been going on there? Well, one of the more recent news items about the Cineworld bankruptcy is uh, Cineplex, um, you know, seeking to revive the merger deal that had been, you know, defunct or asleep up until shortly before the bankruptcy. So that is certainly something to watch. And then at the same time, we saw another company that's been on distressed investors watch list entered the conversation um, because that's, that's national Cinemedia and they um, were cited in a court motion as, um, you know, being poised to lose their contracts with in a world. So that's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of sinners to keep it's track. It's a lot. Of. It's a lot. Um, but, you know, what we've been hearing from sources is that National Cine Media is, you know, talking to advisors. Le- lenders there are also consulting advisors. They're certainly concerned that there's a restructuring in the cards there and the, the filing in the in the bankruptcy docket certainly added to that concern. And I know Nagisa, you and Phil are also sort of involved in, in sort of covering this name. So maybe Nagisa, we bring you in here first, uh, you know, just from, uh, you know, how the case is progressing or, or what your expectations might be around that. Yeah, sure. So as uh, Elijah mentioned, so I think it was September 28th when news was coming out about the potential revival of the merger between Cineworld and Cineplex and it was the day, actually, where Cineplex was in court seeking to uh, permission uh, to, to terminate the bankruptcy stay and pursue the appeal of uh, the suit over, I think, about $1 billion American dollars, $1.24 billion uh, Canadian dollars for potential claim that it had in the Canadian courts. Uh, the bankruptcy court didn't terminate the stay. And the reason behind that was that uh, the the claim there's no material recovery for Cineplex because there's no, it's unlikely that Cineworld's unsecured creditors will get any recovery in the bankruptcy. So whether that claim is a billion, 10 billion or zero, it just doesn't matter. Uh, so <laughs> hey, uh, like, like uh, what do they say? Dumb and dumber, right? 
at least there's a chance. Are you saying there's a chance? You're saying well, there's well, not a chance. Yeah, for now it doesn't <laughs> seem to be a chance. Uh, they can, they, if if there ever is a chance, they can renew that uh, motion to terminate, and uh, and there, there's uh, that can certainly happen. That so the appeal was scheduled in October. It's it's not now, so that's not continuing. But as I said, it tells us a lot for sort of recoveries for unsecured creditors in the case and where that's going. Um, because any this, that claim would have been a, a general unsecured claim, basically. And we, uh, there's, uh, even about 4.8 billion of Center World's, uh, debt, uh, prepetition debt, uh, is secured, was, is secured debt. Uh, so, uh, that said, uh, there was, uh, at the very beginning of the case, uh, Cineroil got interim approval of, uh, close to $2 billion of debtor, uh, uh, debt financing, uh, that was revised. I think we spoke about it last month. So I'm not going to spend much time on it, but that's still continuing. I think what's important for the case now, I think at the last hearing on the 28th, the company mentioned that their, uh, Efforts to submit that they will likely be submitting a plan by the end of October, which is sooner than they had anticipated at the beginning. So they're trying to move quickly through the case. So that's what we'll be watching out for for this month. And, and Phil, from your angle, uh, anything sort of worth noting here, worth reporting? Yes, Noel. So, so what I find interesting about the Cine world or Cine universe, as we go talk about national cinemedia, Cine world, and Cineplex is uh, that there? You know, even more cinemas are going to be coming into this. AMC and uh, Cinemark both own or both have relationships with National Cinemedia. So if you if Cineworld rejects their contracts with National Cinemedia, I'll call them NCM from now on. Um, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that could that could that could potentially have a domino effect on other um, on other. Uh, cinemas uh recall what national cinema media does is it was created in 2007 um really to uh for a couple reasons one it gives them greater scale because they controlled so many screens in the country so that's an you know very attractive uh, channel for advertisers and then two it removed redundant organizations structures within these cinemas to go out and get advertising dollars so it it was a it was a matter of efficiency um however it's uh you know it, it has had issues with the doj when it tried to buy the competitor screen vision um so it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out and i, I just if we go back to cine world and just take a look at it from their perspective um they are looking at, you know, all options because they can potentially go to Screen Vision and sign a new deal with them and potentially get dollars up front. They can renegotiate something with the National Cinema Media or they actually do this on their own in for the rest of the world and for the U.K., um, they have a function already within their walls. So maybe they just want to do it on their own and just, you know, now deploy it in the U.S., so their, their bankruptcy code allows them some interesting flexibility. And then you throw on top of that that National Cinema Media might be in bankruptcy 
bankruptcy too. So not necessarily getting an equity, <laughs> you know, kicker from National Cine Media is going to do it for uh, a Cine World. So anyway, yeah, a lot going I, on I, there. I, it's all I very think, interesting. Um, yeah, I think next month we maybe need to have a flow chart for people uh, as we're talking through this sector. But since we're on the sector, before we pivot to the next name, I mean, I know, I think, a, uh, Eliza, you were talking about AMC, and, and they're maybe sort of looking at a, another refinancing. Is that the case? That's right. They There was sort of a, a slight reference in, in a filing, I believe, to, um, but also sources with knowledge of it turned us on to the fact that they're that they're planning another refinancing AMC of course has a huge debt load that um, you know the company's been doing all right and doing better but it's pretty unsustainable um, objectively at given some of the obstacles that the whole industry faces and certainly as the Fed raises interest rates so it's a real open question what the company is going to do about managing that debt load and upcoming maturities. But um, it does, of course, have options and it has a lot of cash on the balance sheet. But it's uh, what's interesting is just to try to anticipate how specifically it's going to prioritize the debt on the balance sheet and, and who's going to win or lose based on how it maneuvers that. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see, right? Because that's a a story that's sort of been led and driven by the apes for the better part of the last year and change. So uh, maybe turning to Jewel, I know that's another name you've had an eye on. Uh, uh, From what I understand, they're maybe in the early stages of dip negotiations. Is that right? Right. We heard just last night from sources involved in negotiations or or at least considering um, a potential bankruptcy filing that, um, you know, the company has had some informal talks about potential dip lenders and and amounts and loan terms, and they're imminently going to begin more formal negotiations. So, you know, the company has been, you know, publicly emphasized that it hasn't determined a a path yet and it's not 100% set on bankruptcy but it's uh, acknowledging that that is a on the table um, a distinct possibility and I mean it's been written in the stars for a little while now because the the FDA really got in there and made things difficult for Jewel and it's settled you know almost half a billion dollars worth of claims in recent months but there's still an, an outrageous amount of liability there and there's not a lot of ways to get around that other than through court. Yeah. I mean, quite a turnabout from a few years back when uh, obviously uh, our friends at Altria got into those guys for, I can't even remember how many billion, but it was a lot. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so maybe we change course a little bit here again. Uh, another name that I think, uh, or I guess maybe you could say a whole sector in terms of the crypto space uh, continued evolutions and in, in, in events in that space. Nagisa, you want to sort of catch us up on uh, our friends in Celsius and, and maybe then we can bring in a little bit of uh, Phil and Voyager? Sure. So uh, one of the interesting thing happening in Celsius for September uh, that we haven't talked about before was the, the request to appoint an official preferred equity committee. This was by a group of Celsius equity holders uh, it, it may be premature, but it does, it did expose sort of fundamental unresolved questions to the bankruptcy 
especially those surrounding the appropriate allocation of liability among the different entities with respect to customer claims. Uh, there's, uh, we know when they file the aggregate liabilities were around 1.2 billion greater than the assets, but it doesn't necessarily mean, that doesn't necessarily sort of, uh, determine the recoveries, uh, at individual debtors. Uh, there are currently questions that are ongoing about which Celsius debtor are liable with respect to customer claims. Uh, and whether the appropriate allocation, as I mentioned, of, of uh, asset sale proceeds and also whether th- these claims will be determined in U.S. dollars. Uh, and unlike these most cases where I think it's safe to assume that a creditor's committee's goal of maximizing value for, uh, for all creditors is generally aligned with the interest of equity holders, May not be the case here uh, because, uh, for example, it would be adverse to equity holders if customers assert claims against all Celsius entities. Uh, and we do think, though, that uh, there may be some, uh, because of who they are, uh, in this case, institutional investors, we think that, uh, and despite the complexity of issues, we do think that shareholders may be deemed to adequately represent and assert their interests at this point. And I think that that's sort of, that's the kind of take we've generally seen in courts lately with respect to equity committees. The requests uh, are no longer that uncommon. The committees do remain rare. Uh, and shareholders have the burden of proof to show not only that distribution is a possibility, but also that, uh, uh, but but the, the courts do have to weigh the cost of the committee uh, to the overall uh, the, the cost of a science committee to like what it means for the debtor's estate. Uh, the fact that uh, equity holders can uh, that are actively the actively participating cases can at the end of the case claim that they've made a substantial contribution. So if there's a recovery at the end, they can they can get their fees and expenses. We've sort of seen court do it in Erevlon, for example, where they prefer to wait until the end of the case, until there's a determination whether there will be recoveries to decide whether a committee uh, was worth it or whether expenses should be paid. So that may be the case in Celsius as well. Um, I think the one last thing I mentioned in Celsius was that there was uh, recently a, uh, a motion file in agreement with the committee to solicit proposals for bankruptcy sale. Uh, there's this two-tier uh, sale set up with a bid deadline for the retail platform in November and then a bid deadline for the rest of the assets in December. And uh, I think they may be following Voyager's path which Phil may, uh, may expand on, but we're sort of seeing the same thing here, it seems, in terms of just attempting a bankruptcy sale. Well, I think that means it's your turn, Phil. Would you care to expand upon that? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, as, as Nagisa pointed out, Voyager just recently uh, finished a two-week auction, and they um, announced the result, which was basically a sale of the company's crypto assets to um, FTX or the, the an F, FTX entity, 
um, uh, for about $1.4 billion. Um, what's interesting about this is FTX jumped the gun a little bit on the whole auction process and made it public and pro- provided a framework uh, for which they'd purchased the crypto assets um, back in July. And, you know, at the time, the company, you know, kind of took a step back and was like, it felt insulted. But ultimately, if you look at this framework and you looked at the July framework, it's sort of the same thing. So although they say it was a competitive auction um, that took two weeks, um, you know, the, the, the framework looks very much the same and the price looks somewhat uh, akin to what they were putting out there initially. So um, I don't necessarily know how competitive it was. Um, I do think it's... Are there any other bidders besides FTX? I mean, it seems like every time we talk about crypto, they are sort of like they're everybody's rescue financing. Yeah, they they didn't identify anyone. I think, yeah, I, I think... SBF Samuel Bankman-Fried also showed up on Twitter with a five billion dollar potential equity check too, and then di- disappeared on that. So, um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. He does show up on everything. Um, but uh, what what I did find interesting, you know, just from a process perspective, is Voyager came out. This was one of the first high profile bankruptcies of a crypto um, broker, and. Uh, you know, they, they, they came up with the reorganization plan, um, and that was sort of, like, really s- surprising because it was based on the premise that depositors wanted to own the reorganized version of the company that didn't return their crypto, which is a sort of, as a founding premise for a company, not such a great one. Um, so at the end of the day, we're seeing that was really not, that was kind of their worst-case plan B. And and that in reality, they're selling the crypto and they're going to what now what is interesting is they're what how they're returning the proceeds or and still a lot of this is to come. Uh, it still needs to be approved. And it all the plan is also going to get voted on. But one of the things that they plan on doing is if you owned a particular Bitcoin or like or cryptocurrency, you're going to get back that cryptocurrency, probably not your full amount, but maybe like 70 cents of it. And 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 so uh, that's interesting. And then if you take it and this is where it gets really interesting, if you if you think something like this is going equity here is really not getting anything, um, but or it doesn't look like equity is going to get here anything. But if you take this same model and apply it to Celsius, um, you know, I think that's where you see the preferred equity holders in Celsius might start not liking where this might take them. Because there is an argument in uh, bankruptcy that your your claims on the petition date are your claims and they get crystallized then. And so you convert it into dollars if, you know, potentially. Uh, depending on how you view crypto, whether it's an asset, a currency, or what have you. And and then, arguably, the preferred equity holders in Celsius could say, hey, uh, that was their claim. We just have to take care of that in dollars so that they could potentially get all the crypto upside if there is crypto upside. I don't think we've seen a great run in crypto at this point, but, you know, if I'm sure that's in the back of their head, and if nothing else, it's uh, uh, somewhat of an option for them. All right, so it's something to continue to watch. I think we're we're getting tight on time, but there's a name I don't want to sleep on, and that would be uh, Bed Bath and Beyond. But I'm pumped. 
Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Eliza, catch us up on that one. I think that's another name where, you know, everybody's sort of got it on their radar. They're not quite there yet, but, you know, earn, it's really struggling on the earnings front. Mm-hmm. Really difficult to sort of envision what the sort of go forward trajectory of this business is without some sort of uh, deep sort of uh, reinvention. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, do you, what are you thinking? What are you hearing there? Well, the company finally said publicly uh, at its latest earnings that it was going to consider looking at some liability management. So we could see them do a pretty wholesale restructuring. We could just see them pursue a little bit of a an exchange or an amend and extend, but it's officially on the table now. And in response, bondholders are, you know, advisors are talking to bondholders about organizing and trying to be a united front as ahead of, ahead of the relevant negotiations that could come to pass regarding a deal. So the thing that's tricky there is that, um, you know, the holder base of Bed Bath & Beyond debt, the bonds in particular that are due 2024, is really disparate. It's not the typical makeup of a distressed name. It's a lot of par holders and sort of a lot of retail type funds, um, not individual investors, but, but smaller mutual funds. And so it's a whole project, how to actually identify the holders that you're going to be able to organize. And it's really unclear to me, at least so far, how that will factor into the negotiations. I hear that, and I want to put on my advisor hat and say, uh, yeah, we're, we're not going to bother talking to all those different, like, yeah. I mean, it, it, and, and then throw onto it, they, I, I, you know, I've been taking a look at some of their numbers, and, like, they basically burned a billion dollars of cash in cash from operations and capex for the last year. And Yeah, 2024 is a long way away when you're consuming that sort of yeah. cash. Yeah. So that'll be certainly a name that I suspect we'll be talking about a little bit more uh, in the coming episodes. Uh, but with that, maybe let's just wrap with last words. I know uh, Eliza, uh, you know, I think you got to, we got to plug you for something, right? A mm-hmm. big feature in uh, Markets Magazine out today. What's that all about? Yes, we had a sort of postmortem or behind the scenes look at the infamous Envision debt deal drop down priming transaction that happened this year. And really, it was two different transactions, which was part of what really set this deal apart. But it is a we're really characterizing it as the latest escalation in this creditor on creditor violence trend. And what sets it apart is not only that it's KKR this time, which a lot of participants really emphasize to us as marking a new watermark because KKR is typically a lot more reticent to get so aggressive. Um, but also the way that it was really a one, two punch of first the deal with PIMCO and other lenders to, come in with new financing and seize the collateral that was behind the existing debt. And then a follow on transaction that was coercive in its, you know, requirement that everyone else needed to sign on and sign away their rights to sue in order to get any sort of recovery whatsoever. So if you look at it, it was a pretty genius and very um, effective way to completely rejigger that asset structure, that capital structure in a way that, is arguably, you know, barely legal, 
some would say not legal, but uh, it's all sewn up now and there's really no path to contest it anymore. You know, one of the things that like hearing about KKR, it, it reminds me uh, back in the day when I was working on companies, uh, KKR was one of the port- private equity uh, sponsors behind one of our companies. And uh, we thought we were walking into an, a simple amendment where we needed to like agree to give them some more room. And the meeting ended up being they just tossed over the keys and basically said, this thing's going in. It's it's yours. Go figure out what you're going to do with it. So it, I guess I guess that is a, a, a good bit of distance from uh, that to, you know, structuring it so that they can stay alive a little bit longer. Well, and certainly the, the creditor and creditor thing is a, a theme certainly we've, we've had on this call before. Uh, and even in the call today, uh, earlier in our conversation with Todd Lemkin, so it seems like an appropriate way uh, to sort of wrap up uh, this October edition by hoping all of our listeners stay safe and out of harm's way uh, when it comes to this creditor on creditor violence, pretty nasty stuff, and that uh, hopefully everybody enjoys their Halloween, and, and we look forward to having you all back in November. Take care.